And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is November the 7th, 311th day of the year. 54 days remain to the year's over with. And you all have asked me to list uh, holidays and observances. Hmm. And that's interesting. I just had it up on the screen. This is also election day, and a lot of the uh, election material uh, seems to dominate. Well... National Bittersweet Chocolate with Almonds Day. That's something to get up out of bed for. It is National Hug a Bear Day. Great British Game Week. Number Confidence Week. Marzipan Week. Talk Money Week. November's Lung Cancer Awareness Month. National Children's Month. World Vegan Month, National Peanut Butter Lovers Month, November, National Epilepsy Awareness Month, National Native American Heritage Month, Manatee Awareness Month, National Pomegranate Month, National Novel Writing Month, and National Adoption Month. All that having... Now what? Okay. As I say, this is November 7th. In the year 335 A.D., Athanasius is banished to Tyre. The charge he prevented a grain freight from sailing to Constantinople. Athanasius, the first of Alexandria, uh, was a Christian theologian and a 20th Pope of Alexandria. His intermittent episcopacy spanned 45 years, of which over 17 encompassed five exiles when he was replaced on the order of four different Roman emperors. He was a church father, chief defender of Trinitarianism against uh, Arianism, and a noted Egyptian Christian leader of the 4th century. He appears to have been the 4th century's version of Donald Trump. In 680 A.D., the 6th Ecumenical Council commences in Constantinople. Down 21, the Treaty of Bonn. The Frankish kings Charles the Simple and Henry the Fowler sign a peace treaty, or Pact of Friendship as it was called, to recognize their borders along the Rhine. 1426, Lamson Uprising. Lamson rebels emerged victorious against the Ming army in the Battle of Chukdong. Chukdong takes place, uh, taking place in uh, Dongquan, which is now Hanoi. 1492, the Einstein meteorite, the oldest meteorite with a known date of impact, strikes the earth around noon in a wheat field outside the village of Eisenheim, 
in Alsace in France. 1504, Christopher Columbus returns from his fourth and last voyage to the New World. 1619, Elizabeth Stewart is crowned king, uh, one more time, queen of Bohemia. 1665, the London Gazette, the oldest surviving journal, is first published. 1723, Oyuakite, to um a dialogue, a cantata by Johann Sebastian Bach for Leipzig, was first performed on this date. 1775, John Murray, the royal governor of the colony of Virginia, starts the first mass emancipation of slaves in uh, North America by issuing uh, Lord Dunmore's honor, off, one more time, offer of emancipation, which offers freedom to slaves who abandon their colonial masters to fight with Murray and the British. He got some takers. I don't think he got as many as he expected. 1786, the oldest musical organization in the U.S. is founded at uh, Stroughton Musical Society. 1811, Tecumseh's War, Battle of Tippecanoe is fought near present-day Battleground, Indiana in the United States. 1837, in Alton, Illinois, abolitionist printer Elijah Lovejoy is shot dead by a mob while attempting to protect his printing shop from being destroyed a third time. 1861, American Civil War, Battle of Belmont. Belmont, Missouri, Union forces led by General Ulysses S. Grant overrun a Confederate camp, but are forced to retreat when uh, Confederate reinforcements arrive. Also in 1861, the first Melbourne Cup horse race is held in Melbourne, Australia. 1874, cartoon by Thomas Nast and Hopper's Weekly is considered the first important use of an elephant as a symbol for the U.S. Republican Party. 1881, Mapuche Uprising of 1881. Mapuche rebels destroyed the Chilean settlement of Nueva Imperial after defenders fled to the, to the hills. 1885, the completion of Canada's first transcontinental railway is symbolized by the last spike ceremony in Craigalachi, uh, British Columbia. 1893, women's suffrage. Women in the U.S. state of Colorado are granted the right to vote. And that's the second state to take that step. 1900, the Second Boer War, the Battle of Lilief Fontaine takes place during which the Royal Canadian Dragoons won three Victoria Crosses. 1907, Jesus Garcia saves the entire town of Macazare de Garcia by driving a burning train full of dynamite six kilometers away before it can explode. 1910, the first air freight shipment from Dayton, Ohio to Columbus, Ohio is undertaken by the Wright brothers and department store owner Max Morehouse. 1912, the Deutsche Opernhaus, now the, the Deutsche Ober Berlin, opens in the Berlin neighborhood of Charlottesburg with the production of Beethoven's Fidelio. 1913, the first day of the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, a massive blizzard that ultimately killed 215 caused over $5 million in, in damage. That was in 1913 dollars. Today, it would be about $118,098,000 in, in 2013 dollars, so it would be more now. Winds reach hurricane force on this date. 1914, a German colony of Kauchkau Bay, and it's the center at... Uh, Tsingtao, captured by Japanese forces. 1916, 
Jeanette Franklin Rankin is the first woman elected to the United States Congress. Also in 1816, Woodrow Wilson's re-elected as president of the U.S. Also in 1916, Boston Elevator Railway Company streetcar number 393 smashes through the warning gates of the open summer street drawbridge at Boston, Massachusetts. It plunged into the frigid waters of Point, uh, Fort Point Channel, killing 46 people. 1917, the October Revolution, which gets its name from the Julian calendar date of 25 October, occurs according to the Gregorian calendar on this date. On that date, the Bolsheviks stormed the Winter Palace. 1917, World War I, Third Battle of Gaza ends with British forces capturing Gaza from the Ottoman Empire. 1918, the 1918 influenza epidemic spreads to Western Samoa, killing 7,542, which was about 20% of the population at that time. And they did that by the end of 1918. 1918 also saw Kurt Eisner overthrow the Wittelsbach dynasty in the Kingdom of Bavaria. 1919, the first Palmer raid is conducted on the second anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Over 10,000 Suspected communists and anarchists are arrested in 23 U.S. cities. For those who are not familiar with the Palmer Raids, they were rather well known. They were a series of raids conducted in November 1919 and January 1920 by the U.S. Department of Justice under the administration of President Woodrow Wilson. The job was to capture and arrest suspected socialists, especially anarchists and communists, and deport them from the U.S., Raids particularly targeted Italian immigrants and Eastern European Jewish immigrants with alleged leftist ties with particular focus on Italian anarchists and immigrant leftist labor activists. Raids and arrests occurred under the leadership of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer with 6,000 people arrested across 36 cities. Though 556 foreign citizens were deported, including a number of prominent leftist leaders, Palmer's efforts were largely illustrated, frustrated by officials at the Department of Labor, which had authority for deportations, objected to Palmer's methods. Palmer raids occurred in the larger context of the first Red Scare, a period of fear of and reaction against communists in the U.S. in the years immediately after World War I and the Russian Revolution. And there were strikes that garnered national attention and prompt, uh, promoted uh, race riots in more than 30 cities, as well as two sets of bombings in April and June of 1919. In fact, one bomb was even mailed to Palmer's home. Well, we may see some of the same happening again. Keep in mind that a lot of people, especially young folks who've been educated in our clearly leftist schools, believe that um, being an a, uh, activist is somehow romantic and wonderful. Stand up for what you think is right. The problem is, the ones that try to lead the way as, as uh, activists are at the age where they think they know everything, and they know much better than the older folks what ought to be done. The problem is, they don't know Jack, and they have no idea that's the case. Well, in 1920, Patriarch Tikhon of Moscow issues a decree that leads to the formation of the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia. 1929, New York City, the Museum of Modern Art opens to the public. Been there, nice place. 
1931, a Chinese Soviet Republic is proclaimed on the anniversary of the October Revolution. 1933, Fiorello H. Lagorni is elected the 99th mayor of New York City. 1936, Spanish Civil War. The Madrid Defense Council is formed to coordinate the defense of Madrid against nationalist forces. The, uh, the government by this point had run for the hills. 1940, in Tacoma, Washington, the original Tacoma Narrow Bridge collapses in a windstorm just four months after the bridge's completion. 1941, World War II, Soviet hospital ship Armenia sunk by German planes while evacuating refugees and wounded military and staff of several Crimean uh, hospitals. <coughs> it's estimated over 5,000 people died in the sinking of that ship. 1944, Soviet spy Richard Sorge, half-Russian, half-German World War I veterans hung by his Japanese captors along with 34 of his ring. 1944, Franklin D. Roosevelt is elected for a record fourth term as president of the U.S. 1949, the first oil was taken in oil rocks on the world's oldest offshore oil platform. 1956, Suez Crisis. United Nations General Assembly adopts a resolution calling for the U.K., France, and Israel to immediately withdraw their troops from Egypt. 1956, Hungarian Revolution. Yanos Kadar returns to Budapest on a Soviet armored convoy, officially taking office as the next Hungarian leader. At this point, most armed resistance has been defeated by the Soviets. 1957, Cold War. The Gator Report calls for more American missiles and fallout shelters. During this period of time, everyone was positive the Russians were going to attack and throw atomic bombs at us. It may happen, but it's not going to be the Russians. 1967, Carl Stokes is elected mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, becoming the first African-American mayor of a major American city. Also in 1967, President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, signs the Public Broadcasting Act of 67, establishing the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It brings you NPR, which is so far to the left, I don't know how their employees stand up right. 1972, United States presidential election. President Richard Nixon's re-elected in the largest landslide victory at the time. 1973, the United States Congress overrides President Nixon's veto of the War of Powers Resolution, which limits presidential power to wage war without congressional approval. Uh, 1975, Bangladesh, a joint force of people and soldiers, take part in an uprising led by Colonel Abu Tahir to oust and that Alston kills Brigadier uh, Khalid Masharif, freeing the then house-arrested Army Chief and future President Major General Zaur Rahman. 1982, Colonel Saeed Zerbo, President of the Military Government of Volt, was ousted from power in a coup d'etat led by Colonel Gabriel Yoran Somme. 1983, U.S. Senate bombing. Bomb explodes inside the United States Capitol. Nobody's injured, but an estimated $250,000 in 1983 dollars uh, in damage is caused. Also in 83, the Cold War. Command post exercise Able Archer 83 begins, eventually leading to the Soviet Union uh, to place air units in East Germany and Poland on alert for fear that NATO was preparing for war. 1987, in Tunisia, President Habib 
Burgaiba is overthrown, replaced by Prime Minister Zini El Abedin Ben Ali. Also in 87, the mass rapid transit system in Singapore opens for passenger service. 1989, Douglas Wilder wins the governor's seat in Virginia, becoming the first elected African-American governor in the United States. 1989, David Dinkins, we used to call him General Dinkins, becomes the first African-American to be elected mayor of New York City. Also in 89, East German Prime Minister Willie Stoff, along with his entire cabinet, is forced to resign after a huge anti-government protest. 1990, Mary Robinson becomes the first woman to be elected President of the Republic of Ireland. 1991, Magic Johnson announces his HIV positive and retires from the NBA. They thought he was going to just die any day. Still going strong. 1994, WXYC, the student radio station at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, launches the world's first internet radio broadcast. 1996, NASA launches the Mars Global Surveyor. Also in 96, ADC Airlines Flight 86 crashes on approach to Murtala Mohammed International Airport in Lagos, Nigeria, killing all 144 people on board. 2000, the controversial U.S. presidential elections later resolved in the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court case. Elected George W. Bush as the 43rd President of the United States. There was discussion, there was uh, some hinkiness going on, but it was never proven. Also in 2000, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration discovers one of the country's largest LSD labs inside a converted military missile silo in Wamego, Kansas. <coughs> 2004, Iraq War. Interim government of Iraq calls for a 60-day state of emergencies. U.S. forces storm the insurgent stronghold of Fallujah. 2007, a Jokela school shooting in Jokela, Sula, Finland, takes place. Results in the death of nine people. 2012, an earthquake off the Pacific coast of Guatemala kills at least 52. 2017, Samshad TVs attacked by armed gunmen and suicide bombers with a security guard killed and 20 people wounded. ISIS claims responsibility for the attack. I will say again, I do not understand the logic behind a suicide bomber. Give your all for your cause? That's kind of stupid. 2020, in what may or may not have been a valid election, Joe Biden's elected the 46th president of the United States. And he has proceeded to literally destroy the financial health of this country. Uh, let's see. All right. Interesting story was sent to me about um, James Doohan, Scotty, of Star Trek. You know, he was uh, Canadian. He was not Scottish. <coughs> he was at um, D-Day. Wounded six times. By one of his own men. A scared sentry. Shot him four times in the leg and twice in the chest. 
He had just put his cigarette case in his breast pocket, and both of the bullets for his chest hit the cigarette case. Talk about lucky. When I met him in uh, here in El Paso, he was uh, on his last legs, but I had a uh, Star Trek figure that even he didn't have, and it was a figure of him, and uh, I just gave it to him, which is not my normal course of action, and after a few minutes, he came over and picked up every single thing I had, remotely Star Trek related, and autographed it. And he didn't autograph much in his career. And uh, the same day, I met Sulu and uh, had my picture taken with Captain Kirk. The uh, He was charging $75 per person for uh, to have a photograph with him. And there were very few takers. This is El Paso. But I had been doing so well that um, the folks running the show came over and said, would I mind having my picture taken with Captain Kirk? Sure, why not? Um, in spite of rumors, he was a very nice individual. Um, my wife um, went to the silent auction. And I thought, well, what kind of harm can she do there? It took four people to bring back the stuff she bought at the silent auction. Um, got some interesting items, let me tell you. All right. On that particular note, we're going to go back to talking about justice in Georgia. In this particular case, the murder of Mary Fagan. Well, one thing I can tell you, from experience, I can tell you that justice in Georgia is based on who you are and who you uh, are friends with. But what happened in this case went beyond the pale. The, uh, the police took the, a janitor told him what to say. He had to write three or four affidavits to get it right. <clears throat> and anything he said that could have been used to prove that he was telling the truth turned out not to be true. For example, this was a 13-year-old uh, girl in 1913, uh, child labor was not just legal, but expected. Mary Fagan had quit school and gone to work for the National Pencil Company. She uh, ran a machine that put the uh, rubber erasers on pencils. But they ran out of the metal that was needed, so she was... I let go. I mean, there was no job security in 1913 for anybody. And her last paycheck of $1.20, she went to collect on a Saturday. And she was never seen again. Now, the, uh, the various witnesses 
were um, oriented, shall we say, by the police. At who the guilty party had to be. And they knew this because they had a gut feeling. Now, they arrested four people. Uh, but the one that uh, they decided had to be it was a 29-year-old Jewish-American uh, superintendent at the company. His name was Leo Frank. And the evidence against him was, one question, he was nervous. Definitely showed he was guilty, no question about it. Now, one of the things that uh, was an issue at trial, what happened to the girl's purse? Now, the janitor, it turns out, had a reputation for uh, shaking down the young employees for loans that he never paid back. And it was believed by some that he had actually uh, accosted Mary Fagan and eventually killed her and took her to the basement. But that didn't fit in with the police theory. Uh, for example, what happened to the purse? Well, according to the janitor, whose name was Conley, he saw Leo Frank put it in the safe. When the safe was open, of course, there was no purse there. But that was poo-pooed and over, you know, the, the prosecution said, don't look at that. Don't believe what you see, believe what I tell you, is basically the attitude, and that's still the attitude in Georgia today. I mean, I had a, the most senior judge in the state tell me to my face, certain people don't need their own property. It's for the, those of us in the elite to own property. We know what to do with it. Now, during the trial, which is basically a formality, I mean, you've, we've all grown up watching Perry Mason where defense counsel, you know, fights for their clients. In 1913, especially in the state of Georgia, the defense counsel had to live in that community after the trial was over. And one of the things that was an issue in this case, even though the girl was 14, was the sexual aspects of the case. And the prosecution alleged that Leo Frank, with the assistance of the janitor, regularly met with women in his office for sexual relations. Now, nobody else said that, and none of the women came forward to say, yes, in fact, she had had relations with him. But the prosecution said it was true, so it had to be true. Now, Connolly in the fifth change to his previous statements, uh, he saw Fagan go upstairs and heard a scream shortly after she did. He said he dozed off, and when he woke up, Leo Frank called him upstairs and showed him Fagan's body, and he said Frank admitted he had hurt her, and he reverted to a previous statement about taking the body to the basement. Now, this only took him five official statements to give this information. 
defense cross-examined Conley for 16 hours, but they couldn't break his story. When you're dealing with somebody who has been told what he will say, and he's more afraid of them than they are you, it's not hard to stick with the story, especially a very simple story. Defense moved to have his testimony stricken in its entirety concerning this so-called rendezvous. And the judge ruled that had the objection been made earlier, he might have agreed, but since the testimony had already been made, it couldn't be unheard by the jury, so he denied the objection. Again, you have to remember, the judge, though he may be almighty sitting on that bench, still has to live in the community and to side with what in even today in Georgia, is a, a less than mainstream individual, which is a polite way of, of saying that that's how Georgia looks at those of the Jewish faith. Um, nobody was going to side with Leo Frank. Prosecution then addressed the issue of whether or not Frank expected Mary to come to his office that Saturday. And they called Harold Ferguson, the factory worker who'd first notified uh, Mary's parents about her murder. Um, and you know, it's an interesting point that came out. Nobody, according to the record, ever asked how Harold, Helen Ferguson found out Mary had been murdered. Nobody else knew. Ferguson testified she tried to pick up Fagan's pay on Friday from Real Frank, but was told that Fagan would have to come pick it up in person. And according to the prosecution, this proved that Frank had reason to expect Mary to come to his office on Saturday. Now, I would say, even today, you don't pick up somebody's pay for him unless they've made prior arrangements. Two witnesses, both the the person who manned the pay window and the woman uh, standing behind Ferguson in the pay line said this testimony was not true. And both said in accordance with normal practice, Frank did not disperse the pay that day and it was common practice nobody could pick up somebody else's pay envelope unless prior arrangements had been made. And the prosecution just poo-pooed this entire line of testimony. You know, quite frankly, as I said yesterday, first-year law student could have destroyed the prosecution's case. The problem is, when the system has decided somebody is guilty, St. Peter could come testify on his behalf, and he'd still be found guilty. Now, the defense called a number of factory girls who testified they'd never seen Frank, uh, Leo Frank flirting with or touching the girls, and they considered him to be a person of good character. In rebuttal, Dorsey called a steady stream of former factory workers and asked the question, do you know of Mr. Frank's character for lasciviousness? Now, the answers are usually negative. Um, I mean, it was hearsay with no evidence to support it, but it was accepted by the court. And the former factory workers... More often than not, had hard feelings against the man that had him fired. This is justice in Georgia. 
Now, there were numerous charges and countercharges between the defense and the prosecution regarding witness tampering, intimidation, and bribery. The defense went so far as to request a mistrial due to their belief the jury had been intimidated by the mass crowd surrounding the courthouse. But, of course, the judge denied the motion. However, fearing for the safety of Frank and his lawyers in case he's found not guilty, Judge Rowan and the defense team agreed that neither Frank nor his attorneys would be present when the verdict was read. Now, on August 25, 1913, after deliberating less than four hours on a capital murder charge, Jerry reached what was said to be a unanimous guilty verdict. He was guilty of murder. Interesting to note that even though jury deliberations supported, supported uh, to be secret, very next morning, Atlanta Journal reported that the deliberations took less than two hours. The first ballot showed one jury juror was undecided. Within two hours, the second ballot was unanimous for guilty. Seems the news media had a direct pipeline into that courtroom and into the jury room, which was a complete violation of due process by anybody's stretch of the imagination. August 26, 1913, the day after the guilty verdict was read, Judge Rowan brought counsel into his private chambers and sentenced Leo Frank to death by hanging and set the date for October 10th. The defense team immediately issued a public protest claiming that public opinion and news reports unanimously influenced the jury against Frank. At this time, under Georgia law, if you call the, what goes on in there law, appeals of death penalty cases had to be heard uh, based on errors of law, not a reevaluation of the evidence. Appeals process had to begin with a reconsideration by the trial judge. Defense presented a written appeal alleging 115 procedural error, uh, errors. October 31st, 1913, Judge Rowan denied the motion, uh, stating that while he wasn't thoroughly convinced that Frank was guilty or innocent, he didn't have to be convinced the jury was. Next step in the appeals process was a hearing before the Georgia Supreme Court. And in addition to raising the previous arguments, the defense also focused on Judge Rowan's stated reservations. They also cited six cases where the new trials have been granted after the trial judge expressed misgivings about the jury verdict. Prosecution countered the arguments with evidence con uh, convicting uh, with the fact that the evidence convicting uh, Franks was substantial. And that substantial evidence, I might point out, was the janitor's um, dictated four affidavits plus his final fifth change on the witness stand. And he listed the judge's doubts and the defense's bill of exceptions was not the proper way to present this evidence. On uh, February 7th, 1914, in a 142-page decision, Georgia Supreme Court denied Frank a new trial. However, the dissenting justices restricted their opinion to Connolly's testimony which they declared should not have been allowed to stand as it was. They concluded that the uh, evidence prejudiced Frank in the jurors' eyes and denied him a fair trial. In spite of this, on March 7, 1914, Frank's execution was reset for April 17, 1914. Well, in spite of these, these setbacks, defense didn't give up. Based on their discoveries, they filed an extraordinary motion before the state Supreme Court this resulted in a stay of execution, and the hearing on this extraordinary motion began on April 23, 1914. Defense had amassed a mountain of new evidence that called the verdict into question.
number of witnesses wrote affidavits that repudiated their testimony. A state biologist ran tests on the hairs found on the lathe and stated in a newspaper interview the hairs did not match Mary Fagan. This newly masked evidence was leaked to the media, and as a result, the state began to seek repudiation of the repudiations. An analysis of the murder notes showed that they had previously been written in the basement and not in Frank's office, as stated by Conley in his testimony. There was one other issue regarding the police investigation was revisited at this point in the appeals process. During the initial investigation, undisturbed human excrement was found in the bottom of the elevator shaft. When questioned, Conley admitted he'd left it there before the murder. Well, on Monday after the murder, when the authorities used the elevator, it crushed the excrement. This meant that if Frank or Conley had used the elevator on Saturday to transport the body as claimed by Conley, it would have crushed the excrement then. But it was undisturbed when police found it after the murder. So Conley lied again. And almost everything he said was a lie. Dorsey responded, this proved nothing as the elevator didn't always go all the way to the bottom. It could have been stopped anywhere. But Conley himself had stated it always went to the bottom. During a request to Governor Slayton, who was the governor of the state at that time, now Slayton was an attorney, and his firm had merged with that of Frank's defense counsel. So a lot of folks thought that Slayton was biased. Nobody cared at this point. Uh, governor conducted his own test discovered that the elevator always went to the bottom of the shaft, so Conley lied about him and Frank transporting the body to the basement in the elevator. Also discovered that the notes were written on dated order pads that had been signed by a previous employee and that they were only kept in the basement. So the notes could not have been written in Frank's office, as Conley claimed. But in the state of Georgia, what's a little lie, that's okay, for a good cause, don't you know? Based on all the clear problems with the trial, Governor Slayton commuted Frank's death sentence to life imprisonment on Monday, June 21st, 1915. In response, Atlanta Mayor Jimmy Woodward commented to the press that the larger part of the population believes Frank's guilty and that commutation um, was a mistake. Well, as you might guess, the public was outraged at Slayton's actions. The mob threatened to attack the governor in his own home. Detachment of Georgia National Guard, county policemen, and a group of Slayton's friends who had been sworn in as deputies were needed to disperse the mob. For his own protection, Frank was moved to Milledgeville State Penitentiary in the middle of the night. For his own safety, you know. July 17th, New York Times reported a fellow inmate by the name of William Crean tried to kill Frank by slashing his throat with a 7-inch butcher knife. Now, where did an inmate get a 7-inch butcher knife? When questioned, Tagger told authorities he wanted to keep the other inmates safe from mob violence. Frank's presence was a disgrace to the prison, and he was sure he'd be pardoned if he killed Frank. June 21, 1915, commutation of Frank's sentence provoked Tom Watson in advocating for Frank's lynching. He claimed the lynch law was a good sign as it showed a sense of justice lived among the people. One response, a group of 28 prominent men organized themselves in what was called the Knights of Mary Fagan. These 28 possessed various skills from an electrician to a lay preacher, and they openly planned to break Frank out of prison and lynch him. Now, the ringleaders of this mob were very well known. 
But such was the clannishness and secrecy in Georgia, and it still goes on to this day, folks, that this list wasn't published till 2007 when Mary Fagan's great niece, Mary Fagan Keene, posted a list in the web. Among those on this list were Joseph Mackey Brown, former governor of Georgia, Eugene Herbert Clay, former mayor of Marietta, and later president of the Georgia Senate, E. Dobbs, mayor of Marietta at the time, Moultrie McKinney Sessions, lawyer and banker, part of the Marietta delegation at George, uh, Governor Slayton's clemency hearing, several current and former Cobb County sheriffs, and a number of very prominent civic leaders. On the afternoon of August 16th, eight cars carrying a lynch mob left Marietta from Milledgeville, got to the prison about 10 p.m. member of the mob that was an electrician cut the phone wires to the prison. Other members drained the gasoline from the prison's automobiles, handcuffed the warden, and took Leo Frank from his cell in his nightshirt and drove away. They broke the man out of prison. The almost seven-hour trip back to Milledgeville was carried out on back roads. Top speed of cars in those days was estimated to be 18 to 20 miles per hour. Um, lookouts have been stationed all along the the route back to make sure that um, they didn't get stopped. They had a lookout in each small town they had to pass through to make sure there was no interference. Lynch mob stopped at a place called Fray's Gin, located about two miles east of Marietta. Sat had already been prepared with a roll and a table furnished by former Sheriff William Frey. Frank was handcuffed, his legs tied at the ankle, and immediately hung from a branch of a tree at about 7 in the morning. This is justice in Georgia, people. Can Donald Trump expect anything different? You know, I'm trying to be an independent. The, um, historically my family has leaned Democratic, but too many questions have arisen. You know, the lynch wasn't a great secret. It can be shown by the number of prominent people who are present, according to the Atlanta Journal. They had the full story. According to the story, a crowd of men, women, and children arrived on foot, in cars, and on horseback. Souvenir hunters even cut pieces of Frank's nightshirt. According to the New York Times story, Robert E. Howell, a relative of Clark Howell, entered in the Atlanta Constitution, tried to whip up the mob to cut the body into pieces, burn it, and bury the remains. Judge Newt Morris tried to restore order and asked for a vote on whether the body should be returned to the parents uh, intact. Grand jury was impaneled to indict the lynch mob, but nobody testifies to the identity of the members. Justice in Georgia. As a result of a clear case of murder, nobody was punished since it was all done for a good cause. And as I've said so many times in this broadcast, that's typical Georgia justice. Uh, this is a clear case of abusive process. What amounted to a fixed trial? To make their case, officers suborned perjury, resorted to the third degree, ignored the evidence to convict the man they all knew was the killer. Real Frank never saw justice while alive and is still denied justice today. And the real killer, which several folks after the fact said had, was Conley, escaped having to answer for his crimes. In fact, one individual saw Conley um, carrying the girl's body, but wasn't allowed to testify. In fact, he was urged to get the hell out of the state before somebody um, dealt with him, and he did. 
He came back later on after Leo Frank had been murdered. Now, all these fine, upstanding people who um, took part in the uh, murder of this innocent man in all likelihood had the same philosophy that so many of the pro-Hamas um, demonstrators have. Now, there's very little question that the Hamas uh, terrorist, let's call them what they are, terrorist, literally murdered innocent men, women, and children. Whatever you may think about their politics is irrelevant. But they were murdered. And yet... There are people demonstrating on behalf of Hamas because from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Let me point out a few facts you may not be aware of and you're running around and running your mouth and uh, trying to be activist, which is so romantic, don't you know? The leaders of Hamas don't live in Gaza. They live in Doha. They're billionaires because a lot of the aid that we have sent to the various facilities there in Gaza is given to Hamas or taken by Hamas and given to the leaders. So they sit in their finery and they dictate to folks who barely are getting by, barely having enough to eat, to fight for freedom when the people who are running the show have all the freedom they could want. It's fascinating to watch the interplay of people. In many cases, and I've, I've dealt with terrorists in the past, and activists, and they're, I would call them fanatics. They so firmly believe in their cause they don't bother to look at anything else. And the downside to this is they don't look at the facts. They deal based on emotion. Um, had I been one of the people at the music festival and I saw folks getting shot, um, see, part of the problem is Israel, I don't know if it does now, but didn't have a Second Amendment. And it was frowned on to be armed. So for Hamas, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. If you look at the facts... As somebody said yesterday in something I was watching, if Israel said we're, we want the, it all to stop or laying down our weapons, there'd be a massacre the next day. If Hamas said we want it to stop, we're laying down our, lesson, our weapons, there'd be peace beginning the next day. Um, now, and this whole thing was caused by the British. They had the mandate, and they divided up the land between um, a Jewish homeland and the Palestinians. Now, was that right? Well, a lot of the land that the British gave to the 
in the Jewish people was empty desert. And they didn't care if they lived or died. And they turned it into a garden of, of um, a nice homeland. The Palestinians, on the other hand, the areas they got, which had most of the uh, the buildup, according to everything I've read, um, Hamas stepped up and took over, drained all the assets they could for their leaders to use for the cause, and began what amounted to nothing more than a war of attrition. Now the the instance the uh, injustice that took place in the Mary Fagan case also had a racial aspect, a strong racial aspect. Leo Frank was Jewish. Conley, the man who was probably the killer, was black. And by all reports, Frank was well-educated, and a lot of the law enforcement in Georgia weren't and aren't that well-educated. And I think there was a, we're going to get him mentality. Um, Because a lot of folks equate education with being uppity. And then, of course, Frank brought in the Pinkertons, which really pissed off law law enforcement. Um, Law enforcement does not like private detectives. And they thought they were meddling. And in fact, as I reported, a lot of the detectives were actually followed by the police. So they wouldn't plant evidence. So there there were many problems now, had I been on that defense team, I'd have raised the issue of violation of civil rights, which in Georgia means nothing. Am I unjustly down on the state of Georgia? I've had experience with their ideas of justice. I saw my signature on a number of documents I never signed. And when I submitted proof, I didn't sign them. That was, eh, so what? We got a signature, that's all that counts. Um, But on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll have a new topic tomorrow. And until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.